Good morning and welcome to Subject ACT on 2XX FM 98.3 Community Radio, Canberra's iconic and independent radio station. For the next 30 minutes, Subject ACT will explore local community affairs from an informed and curious perspective, affairs with a global dimension. I'm Sophie Singh, your host for today's program, and it's lovely to have your company this morning. Four weeks ago on Good Friday, PNG Navy personnel fired bullets into the Australian-funded and run Immigration Detention Centre on Manus Island in PNG. This event underscored the precariousness of the situation for the more than 800 men who continue to be held in the centre. On Monday this week, Amnesty International released a report verifying the bullets were fired directly into the centre and not, as claimed by Australia's Immigration Department and the PNG police at the time, into the air. Our guest this morning is Sister Jane Keogh, who has recently returned from visiting the Manus Island Centre. Sister Jane has campaigned tirelessly for many years to highlight the plight of people who have been imprisoned in Australia's immigration detention centres in Australia, as well as on Manus Island and Nauru. Jane, good morning. Thank oh, you. Good morning, Sophie. Thank you for having it's me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you. You arrived in Manus Island after the Good Friday shootings. In your meetings with the men held there, what did they tell you happened and how has that affected them? Well, Sophie, I actually had an insight into this before I went to Manus because at 6.30 on Good Friday, I happened to be on a video link with the guys in Manus with a couple of other activists here. And as I was talking to them, they streamed live to me the actual shooting. I have never seen bullets fired, but I saw this young man saying, help us, help us, pray for us. They're shooting at us. They're shooting at us. And behind him, at about shoulder level, I saw these flashes, a little bit of a flash in a line, another one and another one, which I realise now was the bullets, about shoulder length behind him out in the yard. The fear that was in his voice as he said, pray for us, they're shooting at us, help us, is still there now. When I went to Manus, this is what I found, that it brought back to them the trauma of when people died when they were attacked. I met guys who still have the scars and the injuries from the attack previously where Reza Barati died, and so it brought more trauma to them. When I went there, none of the guys were willing to travel into town on their own. I stayed in the town, and the guys came to see me, but some of them wouldn't come. They were too scared still to come out. So the trauma for them is a trauma of fear at the moment, and just in the last two days, the fear has escalated because now they're closed Fox compound and slowly bit by bit they're forcing the refugees to go into the transit centre in Lorengo. They are terrified of that because it's closer to the town. To walk from the transit centre to the towns maybe it's a kilometre or so but they can't go on their own. They're scared and not only that they're most scared that if the American deal doesn't go through for them they don't know who will be taken to America if anyone that they will be left there and they think they'll be forgotten and left and no support for them. So the closure of the detention centre is to comply with the PNG Supreme Court ruling that the centre is unconstitutional. Yes. There was a, a report this morning that there's a very deliberate use of cruelty now to try and force people out of the centre in order to close it. Yes, um, they seem to focus on anyone that they think will be an easier target first and they've designated end block of the Foxtrot compound to have to go now and they're putting pressure on the guys who live there. You have to go into, into Lorengo. If you don't, we're going to withdraw electricity, we're going to withdraw everything that you have, you have to go. 
those guys are really very scared because they've got two things going against them. One, if they go voluntarily, the other guys who really want some resistance will be upset with them for going. If they go and resist and it goes on their record that there's any violence, and the ones they're targeting first, it's interesting, are guys who've never had any record of any kind of violence or resistance. So they're strategic in who they choose. The end block is closing now. By the end of July, all of Foxtrot will have closed. What are the physical conditions at the centre? Were you able to actually go into the Manor no. Centre? They brought photos. It's different for all of them. Some of them, for example, are in, in one big room with 30 people. They have fans in there, but they don't work very well. Others are in a room almost to themselves, and they're really very squashed. Others are five and six and seven, and the beds or the bunks to almost touch each other. There's no room to move around. Uh, there are no trees outside they can go and sit outside and sit under. I said to one guy once, look, you're, you're angry and you're upset. Just let yourself cry. Go and find a tree to sit under. He said, Mum, they call you Mum, Mum, where will I cry? And he said, sometimes I go into the toilet and I flush the toilet or I let the shower go and I can cry for that minute because then no one will hear me, but I'm ashamed to cry. So it's the lack of privacy. Some guys have it a bit better. They've got a little bit of room. They maybe bring something in so they can do their own cooking or something, but others are much more squashed. And one of the guys that I really needed to see because he's got OCD and he's really mentally a bit unhinged and his activist in Sydney that's his main supporter asked me would I see him and take something for him. But we couldn't get him to come in. He was too scared. Since that Friday, he hasn't left the centre. So I organised and had a couple of us go to the bus stop and said, we're at the bus stop. We're going to be there at this time. So we were there at this time and he was so scared even coming with us to come into the town. What was your sense of the relationship between the local people and the guys who've been trapped in Manus about well, being in the town? the bulk of the local people are lovely. Some of the guys have developed good relationships. In fact, one day we couldn't get our normal hotel ride back to where we were staying out of town 5k so one of the refugees who was in town two of them they went off and they said oh we'll find someone to drive us into town and they went and talked to the people who had a car there or, until they found some woman and she came up a local woman and she drove us out and and I tried to give her some money and she said oh no no money so some of them have developed that and some of them are not able to do that the local people are suspicious of them they're lovely people but they're very poor they've got their own problems some of them see that the having the center there is brought them jobs, riches. They don't want them to go. It's their livelihood. They're worried about the closure. Others, it's just been a big problem. One of the local church people there said... This is all wrong. He said, what the Australian people are doing to us and to PNG sovereignty, we are a poor people and they should not be doing this to us. The local politician has threatened that if they move them all to Lorengo, he will blockade the town and won't let anyone move around. So there's a lot of anger. And this anger has been fuelled, actually, by Mr Dutton. He was claiming that the local people are suspicious and he actually made insinuations that when the children came to the camp on another day and the refugees gave them fruit that the refugees had ill intent and the refugees have really been upset about that it's like accusing them of doing evil to children they're so distraught and they're saying we don't have any way of answering the false information that Mr Dutton is putting out. He's painting us like criminals. How can we get the truth out? When I stayed there, we were at the same hotel as the police commissioner, David Yapu, and we invited him to meet with the refugees that came and stayed with us, and we had a barbecue and a a meal one night with him. And the second night he was there, he came in and he put his elbows on the table and he said, I'm exhausted. I've just spent three hours. It took three hours for me to watch all the video tapes, the CCTV, from the Friday night shooting. And I was there with him 
army commander looking at it. And he said, and then we went and looked at the bullet holes. He raised his eyes up and he said, bullets into the air? Rubbish. It was Navy personnel Mm. in civvies. But for Mr Dutton to take that and bring up an incident that happened at least 10 days before and insinuate this, how can he say the locals are all upset and are worried about the refugees and then say, but they're safe to stay there? It's his testimony that's been wrong that's fueling any kind of ill will between the refugees and the locals. Creating further tension. Mm. Despite the very prolonged length of time that the more than 800 people have been locked up in Madison, some have been there for what, more than four years. As I understand it, only 36 people have agreed to resettle in PNG. Why is it not a viable option for people to resettle there? I think this is the critical issue that Australians need to understand. And I think our politicians, apart from their ill will and their policy, they really are very ignorant. They do not understand the PNG culture. Our sisters worked there for many years. We had missions there. And they have what they call a one-talk, a clan system. And you really rely on your clan system for support. There's no social welfare. The support in anything, your clan stands by you. If someone in your clan gets a good job, they help you. If there's a job going, it goes to people in your clan. And even some of the problems that come, like the incident after the soccer match, it's often to do with what clan you're in. You go and get your people. So it's very ingrained in the culture. Now, there are many foreign nationals living in PNG. Mostly they are Filipino Chinese and they have their own community, so it's like they've got their own support system. All the others that come in are come in voluntarily with the option that if their job runs out or if it doesn't work, they can go home to another country. But the refugees will not have that. If they come in and they're discriminated against in terms of jobs and they don't have someone in the clan or the first job they get falls away, what do they do? They can't go and live subsistence somewhere and try and make a living. There is no welfare for them. There's no acceptance. They would be seen as trying to get the jobs off locals. So their great fear at the moment is that they will be moved to Lorengo and if they're not accepted, if they're not among those America takes, they will be left and everyone will forget about them and they will languish. Some of those that have accepted settlement in PNG now already are not doing too well. I met with some of them in Moresby and I can see they're trying to eke out an existence. They're on their own. They're not accepted in any group. And as you imagine, the guys that have been for four years in trauma, who often were tortured or had trauma before they got there, they have medical needs. You know, I visited the hospital. One man had dengue fever and I wasn't sure whether he was paranoid and what he was saying was going to happen to him. And I was trying to sort that out and not quite believing him. And I wasn't fully convinced he was as sick as he said he was. I came away and two days later he has a heart attack and he nearly dies. The hospital has a very bad reputation. They haven't got the equipment. They haven't got the doctors there at the right time. And that's in Moresby. That's in Moresby. And some of them have typhus now. There's typhus there. So that thought that you could actually be dying and not have the medical help in a foreign country... Both in the prison and the hospitals, they don't seem to be registered as normal people. Immigration's in charge of them. When I went to the jail to see someone, I wasn't allowed to see him. And I talked to the commander of the jail, this is in Moresby. I said, can I see this prisoner here? Prisoner? He's not a prisoner. And I said, well, can I see him? And he said, oh, no. He said, I can't let you see him. If he was a prisoner, I could let you see him. But we're just caring for him here for immigration. 
So they're not a prisoner, but you can't see yes. them. And Australia keeps saying that it's all up to PNG. Yet before this last move, and before they engaged 400 extra police to move them out now, who was there the day before running the meetings and doing it? Australian Border yes. Force. And even the email that you try and contact the PNG, one of the emails turned up, and you had to look at the email that you had to contact about PNG business, and it has something, something, something at abf.gov.au. Australia's got to stop denying that it is the one calling the shots here. Jane, you mentioned the US deal and uh, I think US officials were back in Manus this week or last week yes. doing further assessments. How do people feel about the US deal? Is there optimism? I'm sure there's continuing worry. There's worry. 300 guys with no pattern to who was interviewed have been through two lots of interviews and I believe about 20 have been through a third lot but I haven't been able to verify that. Now there's another four to 500 who have had no interviews yet. They're really worried. Many of the people at first didn't want to go to the US, but now it's it's almost it's their only hope. If the US doesn't come through, staying in PNG is what the government says they have to do. They know they can't do that. How can we get people to understand if the Australian government wanted them to stay in PNG and the PNG government and the locals and the refugees were dying to stay there, it's not possible. PNG is too poor. It's not poor, it's a rich country, but they haven't been able to work their infrastructure and their money. The major of the people are poor, haven't got welfare there, they haven't been able to help and solve their problems. So they've got no infrastructure and they've got no money. Australia is a very good country for migrants and for integrating, but it's taken us many years. We've worked at it over a century and we have all those things. We can do it. But countries like PNG or Cambodia, people will get lost. They will be on the streets like some of those who have agreed already to settle are. It's death to them. It's no life. The people who have been denied refugee status and the UN certainly has been very critical of the process that's applied in Manus Island. There must be a great deal of fear for those people uh, with the closure of Manus. Uh, what will happen to those people who have who've been denied refugee status? Many of us who have made friends with these guys over three years, our hearts are breaking. These guys might have negative status, but as the UNHCR says, when they were interviewed, Many of them were already in mental illness, had been there for two years, didn't probably have the best opportunity to present their cases. Azam, the man at the moment who is in Bamana and who can't be deported and there's an injunction there to stop that, the moment, when you listen to his story, how the claims they made and the reasons they gave for rejecting him were quoting him as saying certain things and said he was inconsistent, he didn't even say those things. And he has been demanding that somebody listens to the recorded interview and he can't get the recorded interview to listen to. So that's a huge injustice in his case. I met one young Pakistani guy and he's been deported or he's been forced to go home. And the other guys say, his story's the same as ours. They said to him, there are inconsistencies in your story. You didn't do this and we don't believe that. And he says to me, but I've got the proof. And he brings out these papers. But he didn't show that paper at his interview. I said, why didn't you? He said, I thought if I showed them those papers, they'd just ask me more questions and I was scared. So they go to interviews without legal help. They don't realise how critical it is and they don't show some of their evidence. So it's pretty critical. He is going to take the 20000 he's bargained with them for and he's going to go home to his country and with that we're trying to organise for an NGO or someone there. Anyone who could go home safely has gone. After four no years. one has stayed four years in those conditions and some did go. We are going to ha- really trying to get him that he'll use his money 
first of all, probably to bribe people. So we're colluding. We're giving them money so they can go home and bribe people to get a bit safe, but for how long? And it may set them up. They may be able. One man that was deported, he was hugely, had huge mental health problems. And Australia whisked him off to Australia after they couldn't handle it. Very, very strong mental health problems. They actually brought him down to Canberra to the Pakistan embassy because Pakistan's very slow. They're taking a long time. So they brought him to Canberra. They got him back. And one of the activists in Australia who had befriended him, she actually raised the money and she got the help and she organised for his whole family to be relocated to a safer area. And he started a little coffee shop, but he's still in danger. She's still in touch with him. But that happened over a year ago now. The two that I'm in touch with who were deported, one is in Lebanon and one is in Nepal, I been trying to raise some money to give them a little bit because they went home with no money and that's what they need it for they need to bribe people to keep safe and to keep where they are you're listening to subject act your local current affairs program on 2XXFM 98.3 community radio we're talking with Sister Jane Keogh, who's recently returned from visiting the Manus Island Immigration Detention Centre in PNG. Jane, given the damage that's been done to these people as a result of Australia's policy, were people happy to meet with you? What sort of reception did you get? Well, I've been running with some other church people in Canberra a Manus Lives Matter program now for over a year, and many Canberra people have supported it. And we've been sending phone credit so that they can talk to their families and we've been sending parcels of things they need. And more than even the parcels have been good, but the fact that someone would bother to send them a parcel, that is much more. Um, So I stayed in a motel room and another activist, uh, a migration agent, stayed in another one near me, and we each had two or three of those we know best sleeping on mattresses on the floor, and one of them did all the cooking for us. But each day, each of us had maybe another ten come into town, come and visit, and we tried to create a little oasis of holiday We went swimming with them. We watched the Anzac Day football matches. They'd never seen the Australian channel with the football match. One of them is sitting there saying, oh, I like this kind of football. (laughs) And he's so excited about it. And they told us a little bit. We didn't ask questions, but some told their story. One young boy there at age 14, uh, his whole family except him was killed by the military in his country, in a country that's known for this. And then he was conscripted really by the rebel group um, that were fighting the government, which is labelled by some even a terrorist group. But age 14, for three years, he had to fight and be work with them. More did the dog's body work, but he was a rebel. And that's why he's in trouble and blacklisted now. After the three years, he escaped and he was immediately captured by the army. He was tortured. So another four years, so that's seven years. After that, he was able to get out and raise a little bit to get to a people smuggler. He goes to Indonesia. In Indonesia, people think that there's a lineup. You can line up overnight and for hours and hours to try and even get UNHCR to actually talk to you. And many people, it won't even look at. It's just inundated. If you do get into the camp there, they've worked out now at the rate they're taking them that you would probably wait between possibly 40 to 60 years to get considered. There is no queue. So from Indonesia, he got to a people smuggler. He came here and he was put on Manus. So now three years with the rebels, four years with the army with torture, four years there. And yet he's a lovely young guy. He lacked a bit of social skills, how to talk to me as a woman. Obviously, he little, little things like when you take away a person's life. He has the scars for his torture. He has been recognised as a refugee. He has had no opportunity. And yet some of the others that I talked to, two of my main friends have got master's degrees in commerce and banking. And one was here, for example, because he worked with the NGOs voluntarily and he was in charge of a vaccination program against 
polio or something like that, and the um, the Taliban near him decided he was doing birth control. It's not just them that are unsafe, it's their family. So the guys we met, I was so surprised that so many of them have kept their mental health so well, yeah. were positive, were Incredible lovely. Resilience. They're the kind of people that, are, that yeah. people in Canberra would welcome into their homes and, and they're able to talk with you and, and they've got a similar background. They're not from some primitive place. They're, and they weren't even the poor people. They were ordinary people who've heard the, the rug pulled out from under them and lost everything. And they're so worried about their parents back home or their kids, yeah. the lovely people. You've obviously established some very special connections with um, some of the guys and uh, there are people around Australia who are also working very closely with individuals. How aware are the people in Manus about what's happening in Australia in terms of the campaign to change the policy to bring those people here and to give them genuine opportunities to rebuild their lives? I believe that it's been the activists and the people who've campaigned, the people who've gone out to the rallies and haven't given up. It's e- People in Australia, it's easy to say, what can I do and do nothing. You can do a, a lot just by going to a rally that you don't even want to go to. They are aware of all of this. They get it on social media. It's what's kept them alive. We have kept the mental health as good as it could possibly be through our contacts, through every rally, through every letter to the paper. Even if the letter's not printed, the guys are hearing that this is happening. They believe that the Australian people are with them. Unfortunately, we're a minority. We have to persuade more Australian people to speak up. You know, someone shared this little image with me this week. I think this is what they see as well and what the message we've got across to them. We're all in the same ship. Some people are chained into the ship and are unable to move. Others are in the ship trying to row it to safety. And then there's a whole lot of people who are in the ship and don't even know it's sinking. That's where we are in Australia. And I don't think so many Australians realise that the way we've been treating these refugees, our government's now treating our ordinary people like this as well. And we've found this to the homeless, to people on Centrelink, to people who are disabled. This gap between the rich and the poor, taking money from the poor and giving it to the rich. We all have to speak up because we are in a sinking ship. Our humanity is sinking. It's the type of society that we want to live in. Yes. Jane, you've been active in the campaign for many years and um, uh, you mentioned your initiative, Manus Lives Matter. What's kept you going? What have you got um, out of continuing to be active for 20-plus years? I've had periods within that time that I've had to withdraw. I get too depressed. I'd wake up in the night crying. I find handling my anger at the government, I've got to come back and say, I put on my website, I'm challenged to be Christian. I'm very challenged. I find it really hard not to be vindictive. But I don't believe those things help. I think you have to give believe that in the heart of everyone is some goodness. You've got to keep saying no to what they're doing strongly and be arrested if you need to, but you have to be open to somewhere there's something there. What keeps me going is I have lots of things outside what I'm doing. I have dogs. I have Tai Chi. I have dance. I also don't watch. I haven't not able to watch politicians on the news. I have to turn some things off and not be part of it. And what I have to do is someone said once that hope is a discipline. You have to discipline yourself to hope. I've taken that on and I'm thinking when I get really depressed and I really want to give up, I think, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to hope. I mightn't feel hope, but I am being hopeful. I'm going to hope. I sat in the room with somebody this last week who said, I've retired and I was looking forward to my retirement, but I'm going back to work. I don't really want to, but I'm going back to work and every penny I make is going to be to support those guys on Manus to try and set them up for a new life and that needs a lot of money. I went home and I thought, this is why I keep going. We may be a minority. And then I look up and I see the Refugee Action Committee here in Canberra 
And I don't know a group that works as hard, as constantly, as dedicatedly, it never gives up. And here they are out there every day, planning the next thing, preparing sheets, doing something. There are so many, a minority, but we are a very committed minority. And I think we have to look at that and say, we have to take strength from each other. But we have to plead with the people out there, don't sit back and think you can do nothing. Do a little bit, support the people who are doing things. Write a letter, doesn't matter whether it gets printed. Go to the rally, sign up to be part of RAC, ring your politician. Don't ever think that the tiny thing you're doing is nothing. It's a drop in the ocean, but we have to create a tsunami. We all have to be part of it. And if the most recent polls are to be believed, and I think they are consistent, there is a significantly growing proportion of the community that want the people in Manus and Nauru to be brought to Australia, that what is happening to these people is wrong and there needs to be a fundamental shift. There is. I believe that more than 50% of the population want it. I believe that something like 67 or something of Labor voters want it. I don't know why we don't have an opposition. I, I just am so disheartened by that. We have to talk to people around us. We have to talk to our families. We have to change this. And there is a groundswell. And in the end, this will change. And I'm just hoping it doesn't change too late. If more people were involved earlier, it wouldn't be happening to our poor and our disabled and everything. Cruelty to one group of people undermines our heart. So the heart of Australia is lost. We we are a sinking ship. And it will rebound into our children and our neighbours. And all of us will have people who are losing their their money or their job or their disability pension or something, we have to call this an end. Jane, you mentioned the conference that's happening in Canberra this weekend, Talking Change, Making It Happen. So this is a national conference of refugee activists and advocates coming together to look for opportunities to collaborate and to build a stronger campaign that is taking advantage of opportunities to coordinate on a national basis. You'll be involved in the conference. What do you hope comes out of the conference? Well, I'm excited. I'm really excited. I think it's the first time, I believe, that major refugee agencies who are all working around the country are coming together to try and make a concerted effort. But I don't know lots about it. I put my name down and I'm going. And a lot of the people that I am friends with on Facebook and are fellow activists and have been to Manus with me, I know a lot of them are coming from all different states, people with a lot of knowledge and background and commitment. But actually, I was hoping when I came to talk with you this morning, I know you've been a key person over many years working one of those behind the scenes working really hard. I'm hoping you would tell me a little bit more. How many people are coming? What are your hopes for it? Do you mind me turning it to ask you that? Very happy to talk to that. We hope that there will be roughly 150 people coming from around the country and, of course, from Canberra as well. This is the first grassroots national conference. I'm hoping that we come away with some agreed strategies to work in a more coordinated way nationally. We are stronger as a national campaign, not intended to stifle local activities, but to look for opportunities where we can continue working locally, but also uh, work nationally. There are people coming from a range of different areas of the campaign. So we bring together people with such diverse experience, such diverse ideas, and it's a wonderful opportunity to share those ideas and learn from each other and come away with with some ideas of how we'll continue working together. 
So I think it's a great opportunity. So it's giving some leadership to what's been very disparate and all over the place. Not everyone working for refugees agrees on everything. And to me, that's one of the, the, the beauties of it. We have to agree to disagree on some things, but to get some core. Do you expect that there will be some core agreements that we can allow the differences, but really get behind what is central? So one of the key outcomes that we're hoping for is the creation of an ongoing national coordinating body, a body that can speak as one voice or act as one voice, suggest and promote and engage and be a conduit for the activist organisations that are dispersed around the country. So that gives an ongoing leadership. While it is critical that we point out the damage and the injustice that is being done to the people on Manus and Nauru, and indeed the people still in detention on the mainland, it's also equally important that we have an alternative positive policy that we can point to. And that's one of the outcomes that we're also hoping to walk away from the conference with. Yes, I think the government's often asked what that there are no alternatives. And yet I see even on the RAC website and Julian Burnside and RCOA. Many. There many. are many That's alternatives. Right. Yes. There's, there's many yes. better ways to yes. do this. And there's many organisations that are working on those alternatives. There is a positive alternative. And do you think with this national goal, working together, that we will make a few more inroads on getting the media to pick up the things we're doing? Because from what I can see, in here in Canberra, we can have 3,000 march around the streets of Canberra and the media doesn't even report it. Do you think this national conference will make a difference to that? I think it certainly gives us greater leverage to engage with the media. If we're acting in a coordinated and concerted way nationally, I think that enables us to have a greater impact in our engagement with the media. But it also means that we will have a greater impact to engage with social media when we're working on a national basis. And often I think uh, what's gaining momentum on social media then also has the potential to gain the attention of the mainstream media. Well, I've, I've watched and seen how social media has motivated and moved people and, and informed them where we don't get the proper information from um, Murdoch Press, for Indeed. example. Look, Jane, it's been an absolute pleasure having you come in this morning. I really have enjoyed uh, speaking with you and I really appreciate you coming in and touch. Well, thanks, Sophie, and I really do um, thank you. You've been listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3 Community Radio. Join us each weekday from 8.30 to 9am for a local current affairs with a global dimension. Thanks for your company and enjoy your day. 